David O'Connor is a faculty member in both the departments of philosophy and the classics at the University of Notre Dame. But it may be most interesting for us to know that he was also an undergraduate for at least two years at the University of Chicago, uh, where he played on their football team on the offensive line. And I have it on assurance from Professor O'Connor himself that the offensive line is the most philosophical of football positions. But after he left that behind, he became a professor of philosophy, and his teaching and writing focuses on ancient philosophy, aesthetics, ethics and politics, and philosophy of religion. Uh, he's also known for his online lectures on love and sexuality, which have reached a wide international audience and are the basis of his two recent books, Love is Barefoot Philosophy and Plato's Bedroom, Ancient Wisdom and Modern Love, which is the subject of tonight's lecture. And I can also tell you on good authority, that is uh, the most edifying discussion of human sexuality on the internet, without a doubt. Uh, he has also published extensively on the relation between philosophy, art, and literature in both the ancient and the modern world. Uh, so with that as an introduction, please help me, in, please help me to welcome Professor David O'Connor. Thank you. It's always a, a pleasure to be back at the University of Chicago. Uh, I learned a lot here, and I feel like in lots of ways my intellectual trajectory was established here through the core curriculum. Uh, ever since then, I've had a very great difficulty fitting into a merely disciplinary department. I feel like my intellectual life has been about as undisciplined as it could possibly be. Uh, I think zigzag is one of the essential principles of a truly intellectual life, so I recommend it to all of you. Uh, you never know what things you need to read at a particular time. You've got to make time to go read them. Uh, when Mark Twain said he didn't want to let school get in the way of his education, he knew something. And I feel like the University of Chicago, when it's at its best, knows that same thing. So I hope that those of you who are young use this, this opportunity while you're at Chicago to let your mind grow and become active so that it's not controlled by what somebody assigns to you, but rather it's controlled from the inside about what you find that you need. Those of you who are old, I hope you set a good example to those who are young. One of the things having children taught me was that living before witnesses made me a better man. I have three daughters, and I realized very early on that every time I said something to their mother, I was teaching them how they should have men talk to them. And that made me a better husband, too. <clears throat> so some of what brings me to my topic comes from my experience at the University of Chicago. When I was a sophomore, and the guys, four guys I was living with, Got tired of me always talking about Plato. So for my birthday in November, they got together and purchased the collected Platonic Dialogues in the old Balling and Princeton University Press series for me. And I didn't go to class for three weeks and just read them all. Uh, I recommend that zigzag to all of you at some point in your career. But Plato's always been the hub of the wheel for me. His is the mind I have found most productive to try to settle myself into. And so what I'm going to talk to you about tonight flows first and foremost really from my own attempt to get inside Plato's mind, particularly 
the way he shows us his mind in the famous dialogue, the symposium, that is the drinking party. Probably the single most influential and important work written about erotic love in the entire Western tradition. But for me, reading Plato and thinking about Plato has always gone hand in hand with trying to grow up as a particular kind of Catholic intellectual, both as a teacher but also just as a thinker, just as an individual. So that uh, I find myself, Plato is often the way to a deeper appreciation of something that my trying to live life as a Catholic also brings to me or demands of me. It might be a little surprising to think that Plato's Symposium, uh, mostly a discussion among men celebrating in various ways the erotic love of men for other men, would come to seem to somebody like me as a kind of marriage manual in the Catholic tradition, a companion piece, say, to the famous papal encyclical Humanae Vitae. But so it is, and that really was one of the ideas behind what became my book, Plato's Bedroom, Ancient Wisdom and Modern Love. So let me take up a few themes where I found that the conversation between Plato and more specifically Catholic themes about marriage, about sexuality, about love, about the nature of God, where those themes seem to me to catch fire from each other. In this respect, I suppose you could say, if you wanted a more traditional frame, that for me, Plato was the voice of nature, the voice that then grace could perfect. For, for my own mind, that's a rather mechanical way of seeing the relationship between nature and grace. I don't think that nature becomes fully visible to us without the aid of grace. So for me, it's not as if Nature is foundational, and then grace is just a superstructure. Instead, I think that through and through, our experience of the natural world, when we fully open our hearts and minds to it, doesn't produce grace, but does make us ready to accept its invitation. So, as I talk about Plato, and sometimes in light of both the Old Testament and the New Testament, I hope that you see that there's a continuity in the attempts to think both with scripture and with Plato. One is not simply the foundation or the check on the other. The conversation that's produced by thinking your way down into the claims, the demands, and indeed the practical principles of both Plato and of the Bible seems to me to make a philosophy something much richer than it would be without both of those voices. Even if hearing voices in your head is not usually the recommended path of education, it seems to me that another thing I learned from Plato is that the core of real cognition, the real intellectual life, is not precept, it's imitation. I feel like I learned how to think by imitating Plato. Of course, sometimes I seemed like a pretentious University of Chicago undergraduate. I'm sure I still seem that way sometimes. But 
to my mind, imitation is a central part of what cognition amounts to. So that trying to enter into another great mind where you can find yourself more truly and more strange, as well as Stevens said, that seems to me often the heart of the most real education of all. So let me turn my attention to some of Plato's ideas about the nature of love. And when I say love here, I mean the kind of love that makes you find somebody sexually attractive. So I'm talking about erotic love, or what we sometimes call romantic love. Not a, I would prefer to use the term erotic love, because I think eros is the most important phenomenon. Uh, eros comes from the name of a god, the god Eros. And the symposium is a set of reflections on what that god might be. How does the divine enter into our lives from the special energy of sexual desire? For Plato, that seems like a reasonable path of thought. I think it should seem like a reasonable path of thought for us, too. If there were no erotic desire, there'd be no marriage. I think that marriage for many, uh, not for all, I think for many, I think marriage will be the place where their moral lives reach the highest pitch. And so to look at what Plato does through the eyes of what marriage can be is one way to feel the demand that the symposium can make upon us. The symposium begins, or almost begins, with a questioning a questioning of the example of Socrates. Because there's a rather irritating guy named Apollodorus who is asked to tell the story, apparently he knows it, about some famous banquet at the tragic poet Agathon's house that Socrates and the famously charismatic and dissolute Alcibiades we're both attending. Apollodorus has been asked to tell this story a couple of times in two days, so something must be going on. But it turns out that the famous meeting between Socrates and Alcibiades at Agathon's actually happened about a decade and a half earlier. Why is everybody so interested in it now? Well, I think Plato has constructed this symposium very carefully, as he often does, to place a historical signature. The historical signature is everybody's interested in the story of Socrates and Alcibiades now, even though it happened a decade and a half earlier, because right now Socrates has just been arrested on a criminal charge. It turns out that Plato gives you all the necessary breadcrumbs to follow the trail back to when the meeting at Agathon's house was. It turns out the timing is such that it's now, when Apollodorus is being asked to retell this old story, it's now 399 BC, which is when Socrates is arrested and ex executed on the charge of bringing in novel gods and corrupting the youth. The most important youth of all that he corrupted 
was Alcibiades. So the entire dialogue takes place under the shadow of the question of whether Socrates' influence on a man like Alcibiades was a bad thing, whether he corrupted Alcibiades. In that respect, the symposium, like many of Plato's dialogues, is another apology for Socrates. It's an account of why Socrates, despite some appearances, actually was a good influence rather than a bad one. To read the symposium as a kind of defense of Socrates, then, is to take on the puzzling and uncanny character of Socrates, both as lover and as beloved. Throughout the dialogue, Socrates is presented to us as a virtually unique character, very difficult to compare to anybody else, including the great heroes of the past, and also very difficult to imitate. Apollodorus, the grouchy man at the beginning, tries to imitate Socrates by simply being harsh with everybody and dumping moral critiques on them, hectoring them. The companion who has asked Apollodorus, what's the story about Socrates and Alcibiades at Agathons, responds to Apollodorus' harsh ways by saying, Apollodorus, I don't know why everybody calls you softy, because you're always harsh with everybody except for Socrates. The first imitator of Socrates comes on the stage in the symposium as a man who thinks he's a real man, he's a tough guy, he's harsh. You come to him, you'll get the hard truth. But in fact, he's a softy. He's full of emotion and fretfulness. In Plato's Phaedo, the dialogue about the day Socrates dies, Apollodorus is beside himself, weeping and wailing the whole time. The other manly men who are Socrates on the day he dies, remember at the beginning of the Phaedo, Socrates sends his wife and children away. He turns to his old friend Credo, he says, God, Credo. Somebody take that woman home. The Phaedo enacts an expulsion of the feminine in favor of the masculine. Apollodorus is too effeminate. He's crying and weeping the whole time. Then at the end of the dialogue, Socrates drinks the poison, right? Socrates is cheerful. We're all like Socrates, right? We don't, when, we're, when we die or when our friends die, we all feel cheerful, right? It feels fine. That's not a big deal to us. We take Socrates' side in the Phaedo, right? Not the weeping friends. Who the hell are they? A bunch of unmanly men. Apollodorus is the most unmanly of them all. In fact, he cries and weeps so much that all the other manly men break down and start to cry. That's the story of the day Socrates died. And Socrates turns to them and he says, this is why I sent the women and children away. The Phaedo is a massive enactment of one way of founding philosophy. Founding philosophy is the hyper-masculine exclusion of the feminine. But of course it failed, because the friends still cried. When I read the Phaedo, I don't know about you, you might be more manly. When I read the Phaedo, I actually don't imitate the cheerful Socrates' death. I imitate the crying friends. I'm not sure. Maybe I didn't learn enough from the Phaedo. Maybe the way I found philosophy for me is quite different from the way the Phaedo is often inherited 
as founding philosophy in this hard kind of masculinity, the masculinity that rejects Apollodorus and the other weeping friends, the masculinity that is like Credo, who takes the woman out. But when Credo comes back, he cried too. The Phaedo does in a tragic mood what the symposium does in a comic mood. Apollodorus tells the story, again, this guy who's pretending to be so tough but is actually so soft, right? some uncanny combination of the hard and the soft. Apollodorus tells the story about how when everybody finally gets to this drinking party, one of them raises his hand. He says, let's talk about how much we're going to drink tonight. This must have been a University of Chicago drinking party, right? <laughs> Let's have a theory of our drinking here. What, what are we going to do? It turns out this is the night after the big victory party that Agathon had just had. He'd won in the tragic competitions. And that means just about everybody there has a terrible hangover. And so one of the guys says, I, you know, how much we got to drink tonight? And they kind of take a poll. And the, the lightweight drinkers say, well, I don't want to have to drink a lot tonight. So who do they ask? Well, any of you ever been to a theater party? They ask the theater guys. Right? So they ask Aristophanes, the great comic poet, and they ask Agathon, the great tragic poet. They say, well, before we decide how much to drink, how are you guys going to do? Because you're the big drinkers in this bunch. Right? You're the strong guys. Notice that that also is an emblem of manliness, of toughness, of how strong they are. And Aristophanes says, oh, I, I can't drink tonight. I was really baptized in it last night. And Agathon says, yeah, no, I'm too weak. I can't drink tonight. And so they decide, okay, that's great. We're going to have just moderate drinking, only drink for pleasure, Right, not to catch up with somebody else, say. Eh? Only drink for pleasure. And one other thing that we're going to do. Uh, how about this flute girl that's at the door? I mean, at a, at a symposium, you know, kind of it's elite culture. Going to have some musical entertainment. So you hire a flute girl. She comes in and plays the flute. It actually sounded more like a woodwind instrument, but... Uh, so you have a flute player come in. Now, it turns out at a Greek symposium, you got two men lying on couches. That's the way that they organized it. And often there was some sexual activity involved with the flute player a little after hours. So when one of the participants says, well, how about this flute player? Do we want her in here? And they all decide, no, we don't want music. What we want are arguments. So first, they exclude the god Dionysus, the god of wine. They say it's because they want to focus on rationality. But in fact, it's because they're too weak. They're too weak to give themselves over to Dionysus. Philosophy that presents itself as strength actually is enacted to us as weakness. And then why don't they have the flute girl? Is it really because they're so committed to the life of reason? 
that they don't want to have any music? Or is this another symptom of a weakness masquerading as a strength? They exclude the feminine. She comes back when the drunken Alcibiades comes back wearing the emblems of Dionysus at the end of the dialogue, he brings his own flute girl. It all comes back. So Plato has constructed the symposium in the same large-scale way he constructed the Phaedo. In the Phaedo, in a tragic mode, we see at the beginning of the dialogue the ejection of the feminine. But we see it return with redoubled force at the moment when they know Socrates is going to die. And even Socrates' direct, direct command to exclude the feminine. I sent the women and children away so I didn't have to put up with the fretfulness and fuss of this crying. Even Socrates' direct command is not enough to exclude it. Philosophy has to found itself in that tragic mode within something that that culture codes as feminine and that can't be gotten rid of. In the symposium, in a more comic mode, you see this hyper-masculine ideology trying to found itself as the true site of philosophy. The true site of philosophy will be a masculine site, but they're wrong because it's an ideology. It's based on a weakness, not on a strength. But then what would the strength really be? Well, you might think the strength would be some sort of androgyny, to use a word that comes up centrally in the dialogue. That is, it would be some way of founding philosophy that involved an integration of what this culture codes as masculine and feminine, rather than of simply privileging the one over the other. That, I think, is the project of Plato's Symposium. If somebody asks, tell me in one word what the theme of Plato's Symposium is, I would not say love. I would say androgyny. The question is whether philosophy can found itself with enough complexity to include things that this culture has regimented as separate and has privileged one set over the other. Now, where is this going to go? How would that project of integration work? Well, it's a long dialogue and it's a short night, so I won't go into everything here. But probably the most famous part of Plato's Symposium, certainly competing with Socrates' famous Ladder of Love speech, is the speech of Aristophanes where he gives this wonderful myth about how the original nature of human beings is as big spheres, big globes. And in our original form, we are each self-sufficient. And we come in three flavors. They're not actually sexes. In one kind of globular, self-sufficient being, it's all male. In another kind, it's all female. And in the other, it's half male and half female. 
the spherical nature of the original human beings, it turns out, is an imitation of the celestial gods. That is to say, Aristophanes says, to really understand human nature, you have to see us in our perfect form as made in the image and likeness of gods. Human nature as we experience it is the result of the hubris, the pride, the overreaching that this original state of self-sufficiency provoked in us. Because we were powerful and self-sufficient, we wanted to displace the gods. It wasn't enough to be an image of the gods. We had to be the gods. Naturally enough, the gods did not think so very much of this project. And so Zeus used his thunderbolts to cut these beings in half. We are the broken halves. We are what's left once human nature is wounded. So Aristophanes looks at this claim to strength and manliness that tries to protect itself by claiming its philosophy. He looks at that and he says there's something false in that. What's false is you're not noticing your own woundedness. You're refusing to look at it. And so what Aristophanes does is to tell a story that helps us to see it. Now, when Aristophanes tells this story, it creates a very interesting account of the nature of erotic love. Erotic love is the drive to reunion. Our original perfect state of uh, spherical self-sufficiency can never be fully reachieved in this our human life. It's possible only in the mythic world. But we are driven to unite or reunite with someone who can complete us. Someone who, insofar as it's possible now, will overcome that wound and bring us back to a state of completeness. Now, Aristophanes gives a lot of interesting detail to this account of completion. The detail I want to focus on here is what he says about the nature of these unions with regard to procreation. Aristophanes is only the fourth speaker. The three previous speakers all take on this much more masculine ideology. Their account of erotic love and of its motivations says nothing about procreation. Imagine an account of sexuality that was forgetful of the very fact that sexual intercourse produces children. Well, you don't have to imagine. All you got to do is walk around town. That's us. That's where we live now. It's like it's a surprise. Jeez, babies, where the hell did they come from? Plato is enacting exactly that cultural forgetfulness. These men who are being all manly, 
I mean, they're philosophers, right? They're philosophy majors. They're all manly. They're tough. They're tough-minded. They're drunk all the time, but they're, they're tough, right? They're real men. When they think about, about sex, about their own erotic desires, it's not exactly that women disappear. Some of that, too. It's more that children disappear. Because when they think of themselves as coupling, they don't think of themselves as creators. It's Aristophanes who challenges that. Aristophanes suggests that the gods have given human beings sexual coupling in order for us to overcome our loneliness and woundedness. And insofar as we can, we return toward that original state of union. But that state of union would perish. There'd be no new generation unless the gods also provided for that pursuit of union in sexuality to be procreative. It's only Aristophanes who introduces that notion into the symposium. But from the time he introduces it, it runs through all the other speeches. So I think that Plato's mind saw a certain masculine ideology about the foundation of philosophy. He wanted to overcome it. He wanted to overcome it in a way that gave a truer, in one's tempted to say, rounder picture of human nature. And in his time and place, that meant seeking for an androgynous ideal that integrated things that could only happen with both male and female characteristics. Let's think some about how Aristophanes' myth and Plato's deployment of it then interacts with various features of, call it biblical or Catholic views of sexuality. Let me start from the basic idea that we are created in the image and likeness of gods. Aristophanes is completely direct and explicit on this. But what kind of gods? The celestial gods that Aristophanes has in mind when he says that the original perfect self-sufficient spheres image the gods are primarily images of exactly that self-sufficiency. They don't need other things, they're powerful, and they don't perish. Now, those all sound like good things for a god to have if a god can have those things. But you notice something's completely missing from that. The image and likeness of gods should be put into conversation with human beings being made in the image and likeness of the one God. Male and female, he created them. Why is it in the hymn to creation at the beginning of the book of Genesis that it first says, 
that humans are created in the image of God without sexual differentiation, but then immediately interprets the imaging of God in light of sexual differentiation into male and female. It doesn't seem that the book of Genesis thinks of God primarily in terms of self-sufficient perfection, a kind of wonderful isolation. What's the context of that bit of Genesis? It's a hymn to God's creative activity. Everything he makes, and then he sees that it's good. Or, in the case when he makes us, he sees it's very good. So, the long, long, thousands of years long history of commentary on the book of Genesis has come up with many different ways of understanding what it is for us to be made in the image and likeness of God. None of them are as funny as Aristophanes' speech, but they're pretty good. But over and over again, they tend to emphasize human beings as being images of God's reason or of God's perfect will. Now, I don't say that those aren't available to us, but look, the context is a creation hymn. The most obvious way that human beings imitate the God of that creation hymn is by being procreative. Aristophanes' speech gets somewhere. It gets to the idea that procreative power has some essential connection to erotic life. But it doesn't get to the idea that procreative power is itself the center of the imaging of the divine. But I think sometimes we should give Plato credit for things he almost thought. I think he moves in that direction because his mind sees, his imagination captures in the story he writes for Aristophanes the notion that there's something divine about our ability to procreate new life through our pursuit of sexual union. So, simply as you might say natural theology, there's something very exciting about the symposium. That's not the light it's usually read in, I would say. But I think it should be. Because we see how a certain image of the gods as self-sufficient is itself insufficient as a natural theology if we think of our own sexual and erotic powers as having a divine aspect. That divine aspect is what opens us to our procreative power. Now, in Aristophanes' speech, that after the gods have divided human beings and made us weaker and wounded, and we seek reunion in sexuality, in that return to a physical reunion, Aristophanes says that the humans seek reunion 
But the gods want the human race to continue. So they happily arrange human body parts so that the physical expression of reunion also is procreative. So there is a human purpose in erotic desire, but that purpose is fully in reunion, in that kind of union. There's also a divine purpose, the purpose of procreation. But the divine purpose and the human purpose are kept separate. So in Aristophanes' speech, it turns out that it's merely an accident from a strictly human point of view that our sexual desire also makes of us procreative couples. Babies are accidents, divine accidents, but they're accidents. That thought Plato's mind could not rest in. When Socrates comes to give his own speech a couple of speeches later in the symposium, Socrates looks back to Aristophanes' speech and he accepts a lot of it. He accepts the androgynous push to see philosophy as founded in an integration of things that are not merely masculine and not merely feminine. And the language is full of both male and female images. Most obviously, Socrates says he learned everything he knows about love from a woman, from Diatima, which given a dialogue in which the first thing they did was kick a woman out so they could learn something about philosophy, is pretty interesting. Socrates brings in a woman in speech, I admit. It's only Alcibiades who brings in a real flute girl. You might learn more from a flute girl than you did from a professor. I'm not sure. It depends on the night. Right? Plato wants to confront you with that issue. How much of the feminine are you masculine philosophers willing to bring in? It's one thing when Socrates brings in a teacher in speech reports a past. It's another thing when Alcibiades brings in a flute girl right now. And Plato's mind's thinking about it. But what Socrates says he learned from Diatima, among other things, is that our erotic drive is through and through a drive for immortality. That's the imaging of the gods. But that means for human beings the way we image immortality is through procreativity. In Aristophanes' speech, the divine purpose of procreativity and the human purpose of union, of intimacy, those are kept separate. In Socrates' speech, those are integrated. So that the desire for procreation becomes an essential aspect of what the erotic drive is. Socrates is suggesting to these men that if they really listen to what their own heart is saying when they fall in love, they will see that procreation is a part of what their heart wants. It's not just some other thing that happens 
when they do what their heart wants. It's part of what their heart wants. In fact, one should look at Socrates' speech in a symposium as a working out of the consequences of that way of seeing the erotic drive. Now, Socrates clearly thinks that that kind of procreation has about it some sort of divine or sacred aspect. It brings us into contact with the divine. He's gone even farther then than Aristophanes' speech did. One thinks here, at least I think here, of a famous passage from the New Testament. Famous because almost nobody wants to have to believe it, including the apostles at that moment. That is from Matthew 19, where some people come and quiz Jesus about divorce. And you don't have to think Jesus was divine. I do, but you don't have to, to think he was a hell of an interesting teacher because he was that too. And when people came and asked Jesus about divorce, what he said was, your hardness of heart, and he's talking to men, right? This is another very masculine context. Your hardness of heart is why you have divorce. But what I tell you is, there isn't any divorce. Marriage produces a new being. And what God's joined, human beings can't sever. The image is, it's uncanny how close it is to something in Aristophanes' image. But maybe more striking is that in that passage, Jesus goes back to Genesis. He goes back to the very passage that we've been, that male and female, we are created. Jesus says, from the beginning, like Aristophanes, he uses an original state as the measure of the hardness of heart of our present state. That's the procreative aspect of marriage. But Jesus also cites another passage a little bit farther along in Genesis, Adam's famous reaction when he first sees Eve, when he says, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. And this is why a man clings to his wife. And they are not two, but one. That mystery of marital union. So that the rejection of divorce actually combines probably the most famous celebration of sexual union in, the, in all of Western culture. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh with what must be the most authoritative celebration of the divine feature of the procreativity of male and female. Those are both at the heart of Jesus' teaching about marriage. Now look, 
Lots of us reject that teaching about marriage. That's what the disciples did. Right after Jesus said this, the disciples are they're like they're looking at each other out of the side of their eye. You know how people are? They're kind of and one of them says, Well, then it's better not to get married. I mean, what if she's a bitch? What if he's a drunk? I mean, it's not prudent. Jesus Christ, it's not prudent, he says. It can't be the right way to live. I mean, I'm going to keep my hard heart. Hard hearts, that's good for philosophy. That's good thinking. I'm going to be tough. I'm not going to have this tender, softy heart. I'll be exposed. That's no good. And Jesus looks the guy in the eye and he says, eh, you know, you're right. You might not be cut out for marriage. But don't tell me you're not cut out for marriage because you're going to keep your hard heart. The reason you might not be made for marriage is you might be called to open your heart even more than marriage does. You might become a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven. I'm pretty sure the students didn't like that question on the exam. <laughs> they came to the teacher, they said, look, it's what you're suggesting, that's imprudent. I mean, it'd be better not to marry if that's the commitment of marriage. And Jesus says, you're right, there's another thing you could do. I mean, God, what a terrible guy to be around. You see why they killed him? He's as bad as Socrates. The next thing that happens, the disciples were terrible students. They never learned anything. It was only retrospectively they understood this, the things Jesus said. It's like, yeah, those of you who are undergraduates, when you're 30, you'll think, oh my God, now I understand. I, I know what they were telling me about. So the next thing that happens, Jesus is resting. Some people bring their children to Jesus to bless them. And do the disciples say, these are marvelous children, please bring them? No. They say, don't bother the master. Get these children out of here. He's thinking. And it's not office hours right now. <laughs> and Jesus says, bring the kids over here. If you don't get more like these children, you'll never get to the kingdom of heaven. So right after Jesus has given them the doctrine about divorce that these men tried to escape from by keeping their hard hearts and not opening them, and Jesus said, well, you could open your hearts even more if that's what you mean by saying you don't want to get married. You want to open your hearts even more, that's fine. You can do that. The next thing they do is send away the children. They haven't learned anything about marriage. They will, but they didn't then. Jesus has integrated union and procreation in what he has said about marriage. But his very disciples had a hard time letting their hearts open to that. 
Socrates' disciples, and they were disciples, they had a hard time opening their heart to what he was saying about the erotic drive as well. They felt the comfort of intimacy, but weren't always willing to take on the demand of procreation. But what Socrates suggested is what Jesus suggested, that when you fully interpret, when you let speak, when you let your heart hear, what your desire for intimacy is really saying, you will find within its message the desire for procreation as well. Indeed, they're mutually interpreting. The particular type of complete union, the mutual self-giving that you want your sexuality to express, will find its completion only in an openness to the new life that can come from that physical expression. I think that Plato means to push some of the same buttons that Jesus meant to push. When Jesus said, you guys are suffering from hardness of heart, he didn't mean primarily that you weren't generous enough. In the context of the, the Bible, the heart is an organ also of perception. To have a hard heart is to be hard of hearing, to refuse to listen to something. I think for lots of people in contemporary American culture, they actually find it harder to listen to Jesus than they might find it to listen to Socrates. I think one way I can help my students become better Catholics is first by helping them become better pagans. I think that Plato opens the organ of perception in your heart in a way where sometimes you'll let down your defenses. You'll stop embracing a certain ideology that we're all steeped in. Because Plato doesn't look as immediately threatening as Jesus does. It turns out they're both pretty threatening. We live in a place and time where the couple is not the most real thing in most people's lives. For better, for worse, till death. Those vows only make sense if when you take those vows, a new thing enters the world. When you marry, this is no longer two people. It's one. Two become one. That is not a symbol. That is not a metaphor. That is a real thing. Accepting the procreativity of sexual union is a part of becoming that real thing, so it seems to me. Plato helped me to acknowledge that. I didn't want to acknowledge that when I was a younger man. Maybe I didn't even know what it was to acknowledge that until I had a child. But I am glad 
that as my life opened up to my wife, to my children, I am glad that I let that experience open up these texts too. Reading goes both ways. The text enters you as much as you enter it. Most of us are surely no better students than Jesus' own disciples or Socrates' own disciples were. All I can say in about that is if you let your sexual powers create a new thing in the world in your love for that person to whom you have a spousal relation, you will also want those powers to open up to the new lives of children. Our world fears children and sees them more as a threat to intimacy than as a completion or an expression of it. Children enter into romantic movies mostly as comic impediments. It's very hard to find a contemporary movie, a contemporary story in which an intrinsic part of a couple's erotic desire is to see each as making the other a parent. This is a very common human experience that part of what you appreciate about your spouse is exactly that with your spouse, you as a couple parent children. It's not that your wife makes it possible for you to be a father. That's not the way that it works. It's instead that you and your wife become a father and a mother. And it's that couple that's the most real thing. And your children are a constant reminder of the marriage vows and a constant reminder of what it would mean that the two become one flesh. Does Plato help us to cross the wasteland of the corrupted nature that our contemporary culture gives to us and find the more verdant pastures of a more pagan nature that then can hear what the call of grace might be? I would say I've predicated my career as a teacher, particularly as a Catholic teacher, on a particular answer to that question. I hope I've helped you all become a little bit more pagan this very evening. Thank you.